Father, thank you for giving us opportunity to gather together again this morning. We thank you for the previous 11 weeks as we've gone through the study together. Behold your God, the weight of majesty. God, we thank you that you are a God who would reveal yourself to your people, that we might know you, that we might be in awe of you, that we would see that you are a big and glorious God. Father, we ask once again this morning that you would reveal yourself even more to us, that you would teach us more about who you are, a God who is patient and a God who is zealous. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are back in Bedford, England to continue our look at the life of John Bunyan. Oliver Cromwell, the nation's leader, who along with Parliament had given religious freedom to the independent churches, died and the monarchy was restored. The promises of religious freedom given by the new king were proven false. Persecution was on the horizon for all ministers who would not conform to the state church. John Bunyan continued to preach in fields, barns, homes, wherever he could and he preached powerfully. People traveled to hear him. Hundreds were gathering. Occasionally, Bunyan preached in London, even in the church of John Owen, one of the great theologians of the day. The king once asked John Owen why he wasted his time listening to an uneducated tinker preach, and Owen replied that he would gladly give up all his learning if he could only preach like that tinker. New laws were enacted that made it illegal for independent churches to gather for worship. John Bunyan continued to preach without state ordination. One day he set out to preach at a nearby farm. Bunyan knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest and his host was nervous about going forward with the meeting. John insisted that they continue. Just as the meeting began, the local authorities burst into the house and a warrant for his arrest was shoved into Bunyan's hand. John Bunyan spoke a few words of comfort to the congregation and was led away to prison. Bunyan was imprisoned for a total of 12 years. Part of that sentence was spent in a small jail built into the bridge that originally spanned the River Ouse here behind me. Despite the impression given by the paintings and stained glass windows depicting Bunyan's time in prison, the conditions were horrific. Bunyan tells us that there was no heat, only straw for bedding, and a lack of sanitation which bred disease. Yet he chose to suffer this rather than to sin against his conscience. He was at the same time choosing suffering for his family, and he felt this keenly. When John was arrested, Elizabeth was pregnant. She lost the baby. 
She was young and had the care of four little children, one of them blind. Yet Bunyan would not compromise. He wrote, I have determined, the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer, if frail life continues so long, even until the moss shall grow upon my eyebrows, rather than violate my principles and my faith. Elizabeth did all she could to secure John's release. At one point, she entered this building, the Swan Inn, where the judges gathered before trials. In a dignified manner, she pled for John's freedom. When asked if Bunyan would stop preaching, she replied, My Lord, he dares not leave preaching as long as he can speak. When one of the judges stated that Bunyan's doctrine was of the devil, she responded, My Lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. She was given little hope and left the room in tears. Elizabeth later told her husband that her tears were because these poor creatures, the judges, would have to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. John Bunyan had already authored a number of works before his imprisonment, not one to waste time when he wasn't making bootlaces to help support his family or preaching to the other prisoners. He spent his time in prison writing. This tinker with little education would eventually produce a collection of 58 titles. His works reveal what he thought was essential in Christianity. Many of his works speak of the hope that there is for sinners in Christ alone. These include titles such as A Light for Them That Sit in Darkness, Christ, A Complete Savior, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, or The Acceptable Sacrifice, The Excellency of a Broken Heart. Others speak of the changes that being saved by Christ must include, as in his work, a holy life, the beauty of Christianity. By his pen, Bunyan has continued to guide other pilgrims for over three centuries. Changes in the political scene led to Bunyan's release from prison in 1671. He was appointed pastor of the Bedford Independent Church. In the early days, the believers met in a renovated barn. We are in their present church building, now called the Bunyan Meeting House. Four years later, the laws changed again, and John Bunyan was imprisoned for an additional six months. It is believed that he wrote his greatest book, The Pilgrim's Progress, during this imprisonment. He tells us that he started writing to keep his mind occupied with spiritually beneficial thoughts. Little could anyone have imagined the enormous popularity and impact of that book. It was first published in 1678 and hasn't been out of print since. Its success is unparalleled. Upon his final release from jail in 1677, John Bunyan continued pastoring and preaching. Bunyan's contemporaries said that few, if any, had more success as far as conversions were concerned. In his 60th year, he was traveling to preach and took a side trip to try to resolve a father-son dispute. He was able to help restore the relationship, but was exposed to the rain and arrived drenched and cold. He preached his final sermon and died of pneumonia 10 days later, far from home and family. As he lay dying, John Bunyan struggled to speak, but he was able to say these final words. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt, through the mediation of his blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner, 
where I hope we ere long shall meet and sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy, world without end. I want to leave you with a warning by John Bunyan regarding knowing God. He said, we must know him aright. He only is what he is, whatever imaginations we have of him. We may set up idols and images of him as much in our minds as some do in their houses and in their temples and be as great idolaters as they. Then he added, now if you would know him, you must diligently feel for him in his works, in his word, and in his ways. Setting up an imaginary God in your mind is still a danger in the 21st century. To avoid it, you must take Bunyan's advice to heart. This week, you will have an opportunity to feel for the true God in his works, in his word, and in his ways. Early in the study, we gave a definition of theology, a definition by the Puritan theologian William Ames. He said, theology is the study of living unto God. And throughout the 12 weeks, we have tried to return to the pictures in Colossians chapter 2 for a practical application of the truths that we're learning. Taking each attribute, we are obligated to do what Paul said to the Colossians. Listen to what he says again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So we want to take each of the attributes that we've studied and we want to find room in our lives to be transformed by the God that we're being reacquainted with. So take these pictures. We're to walk in them. The hundreds of unnoticed choices every day, like the steps that you take, quietly transformed by the realization of who God is. And all of them leading to a destination of loving Him with our whole being. Second, not just walking in them, but sinking our roots down in them, getting our souls satisfied and nourished in the truth of who God really is. Third, building upon these truths. We can't afford to let all these doctrines, these attributes of God that we've looked at for the past 12 weeks, to sit in the side of our life like a nicely stacked pile of bricks. We have to break the bands on the bricks. We have to get them out. We have to find a way to take these truths and build our lives on them. We're to be forth established in the truths. That is, we're to be mature in them. We don't want to settle for undigested concepts. We want a maturity that comes from a daily application of these to practical areas of life. And fifth, Paul says, we do all of those with gratitude. The Christian meeting God again in the scripture has an obligation to be filled with a happiness, a gratitude, a thankfulness that this is the God that Christ has brought me to. Nothing less than those pictures really is a picture of Christian progress. 
Now, that's a tall order, and we might be tempted to despair and to think, well, I'm not sure if I can take all those truths that we've studied throughout the 12 weeks of the study. I don't know if I can really find a room for them in my life. So before we end, we want to look at one more attribute, an attribute that I think really has the potential of putting real courage into the Christian, and that is the zeal or the jealousy of God. Now, if you remember from this week, the Hebrew and Greek words for zeal and jealousy are identical. Zeal, we might describe as the keenness or intensity or the heat with which we pursue a goal. Jealousy is that same quality, but united to the idea of love or a loved one. There is an intense protectiveness. There's a watchfulness over the one you love. There's a strong desire for them and a deep devotion. It is the complete opposite of an indifferent and half-hearted approach. Now, talking about the zeal and the jealousy of God, where do we see those? It is a wonderful reality in Scripture that the clearest display of God's zeal and the clearest display of God's jealousy is not in our destruction, but in the rescue of his people. Do you remember these passages? In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, we see the zeal of God connected to the sending and enthroning of Christ. You know this passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's quite a statement about a child. How do we know it will come to pass? The final words of Isaiah there. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? You could really write that over all of Christianity. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Think of Isaiah 42. Right after a description of the coming of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, there's a response from creation. And in verse 13, we read this. It's a description of Christ. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The zeal of the Lord. When we look at Christ in the gospel accounts, we see zeal, half-heartedness, indifference. is never a description we can apply to Christ. Think of the first public act of Jesus Christ in the capital city of Jerusalem. He enters the temple. You know the account. He sees the money changers profiteering. He drives them out with a whip. What can explain such strange behavior? John chapter 2, verse 17. We read this. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. We see this in the rescuing of God's people from their enemies. Remember the account of Hezekiah 
and the Assyrians have surrounded Jerusalem. It's a besieged city. And Hezekiah goes to the Lord in prayer. And there's that wonderful promise that the prophet Isaiah brings to Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 31, we read this. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. That is, that these enemies will be put to death, and you will be able to exit the city again and be free like you were before. And that's exactly what happened. But how do we know that will happen? And the end of the verse says this. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. There is an intensity in God. There is an extremeness with regard to his people. He is jealous for their welfare. He will destroy their enemies. We see it in his jealous desire for his people's undivided hearts, their affection. Do you remember Exodus 34, 14? God says, you shall not worship any other God. Why not? For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Or Deuteronomy 4, Moses says to the people before they enter into the promised land, Watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It's not just Old Testament, is it? We see the jealousy of God for His people in the New Testament. James chapter 4. James is writing to a group of believers who are drifting and they desire once again to be friends with the world. They want to fit back in with the way the world thinks and lives. So James writes this, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in them. There is something about God, His essential character, that He is always a jealous God for His people's love. Because God is normally zealous, because He is normally jealous for His people, it is a sign of judgment when God withdraws that. And when the people of God look around and they feel that God no longer shows His zeal, They feel as if God is no longer jealous for them. Listen to Isaiah 63, 15. The prophet says this, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. And then he asks God some questions. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. Now, these are only a few examples of the zeal of God or the jealousy of God that you looked at this week. But God's zeal and jealousy don't end with God's activity. They're reflected in His people, too. Think about it. What is a Christian? A Christian is not merely a person who's been pardoned by God and placed in his family, taken from a kingdom of darkness and placed in a kingdom of light. It's not just positional. There's a real interior change as well. And the new birth is the beginning of a transformation that will ultimately end when the Christian sees Christ face to face and gathered with every other believer in the Old Testament and New Testament and since, all the body together, the bride, will be perfected. 
A Christian is being daily transformed into the moral image of Christ. That means that the moral attributes that we've been studying, God's love, God's patience, God's purity, God's faithfulness, these will be reflected in some measure in His people. Not perfectly, but truly. And that is the same when it comes to His zeal or His jealousy. Sanctification, the transformation of the Christian into the image of Christ, slowly but surely, guarantees that a holy zeal and jealousy will exist in the life of a believer. There will be a zeal for God's honor. There will be a jealousy for God's honor. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, wrote this, Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. This desire is so strong, he says, that it impels a man to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, even to die, if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees only one thing. He cares for only one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Now that's a nice quote, isn't it? But how does it show up in the Christian life? What does the Bible say about the zeal and the jealousy of God in the Christian life? Well, listen to these passages. We find that serving God, the God of heaven, obligates a Christian to zeal. Do you remember Ezra chapter 7? Ezra says, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal. Consider the God that we've been studying. How could a half-hearted response, a half-hearted service be appropriate? Christ, Paul says, has saved us to make us zealous for obedience. In Titus chapter 2 verse 14, it says, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, intensely earnest, we could say, about good deeds. Now, we all remember before Christ, we were in earnest about obeying ourselves, about living for self, keeping our own rules. But now we are zealous to obey someone else. When a Christian sins, we see the zeal of God in the Christian in the very act of repentance. Do you remember Revelation 3, verse 19? Christ says to the church at Laodicea, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous, be earnest, be intense. Let there be a heat to your action. Be zealous and repent. Now, when Paul writes his second epistle to the Corinthians, in verse 11, he describes their repentance and notice that you spot this zealousness in it. For behold, he says, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. 
What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. We see zeal even in the repentance of a Christian. Now what I want us to look at now is two instructive examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Examples of believers who were filled with a jealousy for God or a zeal for His people. And I want us to see how that moved them to act and how that is instructive for every believer. Well, first we'll look at the New Testament and we'll look at a person who was jealous to present a pure bride. Now this takes us to Corinthians again. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Corinth was a church that was in trouble. We know that. They had drifted into dangerous behavior. They had become very slack with regard to sin, focusing on their spiritual giftedness. They didn't focus on holy living. And they were tolerant of sin within the church. And Paul had to write some very strong words to them. But what was his motivation for those strong words? In the 11th chapter of the second letter, we read this, verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. God's jealousy for His people, God's zeal for His glory in the church is clearly reflected in the way that Paul reacts to a drifting people. He did all he could to jealously guard the bride of Christ and to, in a sense, to walk her down the aisle to present her to her groom. Is she going to be sinlessly perfect? No. But he wants her to have this undivided loyalty. Again, he says it this way. I want you to have the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Whatever it took to keep the Corinthian believers focused on the superior beauty of Christ, Paul wanted to do that. And that really is required of every Christian. We know that we are all involved in bringing each other to maturity in Christ. And that will include zeal. That will include jealously guarding the church for Christ. Sometimes it means we have to write letters to people that are hard or to speak words that are difficult. Sometimes that means we'll have to spend long seasons in prayer for our brothers and sisters. Sometimes that means we simply walk alongside someone who's struggling and we consistently are there for them. Sometimes that means we have to stir each other to good works instead of allowing self-indulgence. This is one way that the zeal of God shows up in the church. But there's another example, and that comes from the Old Testament. And this example includes a man. In fact, he's the grandson of Aaron the high priest. And his jealousy, which reflects God's jealousy, we will see, turns the wrath of God away from his people. How does it look when a believer is jealous for God in the midst of a drifting, sinning people. Well, because we love God, it's essential that it grieves us to see people turn away from God. In Psalm 119, 
the 139th verse, we read this. My zeal has consumed me. Why? Because my adversaries have forgotten your words. So the Christian comes to church. The Christian looks at the bigger scene of religion. And we say, my zeal is consuming me. Why? Because so many are forgetting God and His words. So zeal rises up when we see God being ignored, His word being ignored. When people live as if there is no king but us. But this is especially painful to the believer when we see it occurring in those who claim to love Christ. So that's what brings us to Numbers chapter 25, where we read of an alarming event in the history of Israel. By the time we reach this spot in Israel's history, God has already delivered them from Egypt and the empty idols of the Egyptians. So many years they'd lived under that. So God must give them a number of events. He allows them to go through experiences that teach them about Him. There's no other God like Him. They've never met a God like Him. He's delivered them over and over from their enemies. But in Numbers 25, the tactic of the enemy shifts. It's no longer a frightening attack. It's a quiet seduction. It's the whisper of friendship. We read this. The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Now what's happened is the Israelites, as they're traveling, they're in a Moabite territory And the people of Moab are friendly to the people of Israel. And they begin to intermix and they decide that they should be neighborly and go to church with the Moabites. So here's the account. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, that is the Jews, ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. Now, we need to understand, this is not a person going from their denomination to visit some other denomination, from their church to go down the street to another church. The Moabites worship Baal of Peor. It's a fertility god. So generally, this included acts of immorality with temple prostitutes and big feasts and celebrations. The account continues. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. We see the jealousy of God, the zeal of God. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So the leaders of the tribes are to take the people who are under their jurisdiction and anyone who joined in that false worship is to be put to death in broad daylight in front of everyone. Now while this is happening through the camp, and you can imagine the hundreds of thousands of Jews and people being searched out who joined in that false worship and they're being put to death and the grief and the confusion. And while this is happening, we read in verse 6, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman, one of the women from this Moabite camp. And they did this in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now what's happened? 
The leaders of Israel are there at the tabernacle and they're before the tabernacle weeping over the sin of Israel. And while they're doing that, one young man brings a woman from the Moabite worship and he walks right past all of them into his tent. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, literally through the stomach. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked or stopped. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So we understand that God had begun to judge Israel and 24,000 had died, other than the people that were being put to death by the judges of Israel. And the plague was stopped because this man, Phinehas, so cared about the honor of God, was so jealous for God, that he was willing to spear a man and woman through in their tent. In verse 11 and following, we find God's answer to this. God says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. It's quite a shocking passage, isn't it? One man, jealous with the jealousy that God has, intervenes in such an extreme way as to kill a man and woman who are committing immorality in their tent. And God's wrath is turned away from an entire nation. The church needs men and women and young people like Phineas, like Paul. Think of it. Often a church will begin to drift and the most godly members remain quiet because they don't feel that they should assert themselves. They don't, they don't want to rock the boat. And as the godly are quiet, when they should have taken a stand for God's honor, the church then goes off track. So we need jealous Christians who are willing to risk everything to help guide the church down the aisle, so to speak, walking down the aisle. There's Christ at the end of life, at the end of time. There's the groom. The bride is being guided down the aisle. Sometimes she's, she's distracted. She might look at old boyfriends to the left and right. No, we say, keep your eyes on Christ. The church needs people who will help her walk down the aisle, heart focused on Jesus alone. Now, there are some directions that we need to give if we're to be zealous in a way that's beneficial because certainly there is a type of zeal that's dangerous. If we fail to express our zeal wisely, then we will damage the people of God and not help them. In other words, zeal should never walk down the path alone. It should always have a traveling companion, knowledge or wisdom. Do you remember Paul's description of the Jews in Romans 10? I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not with knowledge. So it's easy to be religious and zealous, but that doesn't mean you're right. Passion is not enough. If you're going to help the church like Paul did, if you're going to be a part of God turning a people back like Phineas was, you're going to have to have knowledge and zeal. Paul describes himself before he comes to Christ as a very zealous man. Listen to what he says in Acts 22. 
I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. How did he show this zeal? I persecuted this way, Christianity, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. In Galatians 1, he describes his zeal before Christ. I was extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, he says. Philippians 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was zealous without truth, without Christ, and he did not help the church. But after meeting Christ, Paul remained zealous. But now, zeal united to the truth of Christ, he is able to benefit the church. Now, when we read the letters of Paul, we find him facing a great deal of compromise in the church, but we never see him becoming frustrated and harsh and cruel and arrogant, impatient. So what does the zeal of Paul look like? Well, listen to 2 Corinthians 4. This is his zeal when he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So he says, death works in us, but life in you. Now there's the zeal of Paul. Not in harsh words, not in hypercritical approach to Christianity, but in paying a terrible price to show them a better path, to point them to their Savior. In chapter 6, he just goes on to describe his zeal some more. What does it look like? Well, he says, we give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. In everything, we commend ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. He says, we are poor, yet we make many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. It's very tempting when we talk about the zeal of God in the Christian life to say we need to be very serious about obedience and we become hypercritical. But Paul is a great help here. Where do we start in our zeal? With us. To make sure that our hearts are in the grip of Christ, our homes. And then we're in a place to walk alongside others and to plead with God that like Phineas, we might be used to turn the people back. And when you're tempted to despair, after seeing all the sin in your own heart and the sin in the church, then we take the words of Isaiah and we write them above everything in our life. God, our hope is this, that the zeal of the Lord 
will still perform all that he's promised. Let's pray. God, grant, not according to what we deserve, not according to our strength and devotion, not even according to our faith, but God, according to your zeal, your intense desire for your glory, and your jealous love for your people, grant that our day might be a day of returning. In Christ's name, amen. The Hebrew word long-suffering um, has, the, has the idea of uh, slow to boil. And perhaps there's one passage, probably more than any other passage in the Bible, that has helped shape my thinking about who God is. It's God's own self-declaration in Exodus 34. Moses has prayed in the previous chapter, Lord, show me your glory. And that word glory, the Hebrew word kavoth, has the idea of weight to it. And the Lord says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. The explication of God's glory is the revelation of his goodness. And what the Lord then says to Moses is absolutely pivotal for understanding everything that follows in the history of redemption. The Lord the Lord. Here's what you want to know, Moses. The Lord, the Lord, rich in mercy, full of covenant love, long-suffering. And God's long-suffering is, if you like, an aspect or an element of his mercy. It's his slow to boil patience with a world of lost sinners. Uh, I'd like to share with you the greatest news in the universe. There is a God, you're not him. Uh, the God who is exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three gods, one God. Our little minds can't fully conceive, but the Bible clearly teaches that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for reasons known, largely only to himself, he was pleased to spill over in creation. The Bible says he created everything for his own glory. And as a crowning display of his creative genius, he made man in his own image. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect fellowship with God on the day that they were created. But the Bible teaches us that Instead of honoring and obeying him, instead of enjoying and delighting in him as they should have, which is the definition of bliss, instead of that, they rebelled against him. Uh, they fell into sin. They took his word and disregarded him. They tried to usurp his throne and become their own deity. And You will have nothing to do with me. You will not tell me how to run my life. That's how they sin. Well, instead of kicking them to the lowest corner of hell, which is what they deserved, that would have been fair, God unfolded his eternal plan to send a redeemer for sinners, that he would provide a way for these rebellious creatures 
to be reunited in fellowship with him and enjoy him forever as we were created to do. Well, the Bible teaches very simply that the Lord Jesus Christ is that Redeemer, the second person of the Trinity, the one who from eternity has enjoyed fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, is the one who came and lived a life of obedience before the Father that you should have lived. And the reward he got for perfectly obeying the Father was we tacked him to a tree. We took a perfectly innocent man, and as the reward for a life of perfect obedience to the Father, we crucified him. We put the Lord of glory on a tree and said, in effect, he's too vile for us. You deal with him. And the Bible teaches that's exactly what happened. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God judged him for your sin and for my sin. The Bible teaches that because Jesus is a perfect sacrifice, he could satisfy the justice of God as a sacrifice for your sin and mine that's adequate. Well, how do we know that he was enough? How do we know that God accepted his sacrifice and it uh, didn't leave something undone? Well, the Bible teaches that three days later, God raised him from the dead. And Romans chapter 4 says, I love this, he was raised for our justification so that when God looks at you and me, if we have our hope in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises, God looks at us and says, I declare you right with me. I declare you justified in my presence. And uh, the best part of the good news is not only what we're saved from, death and hell and the consequence of our sin, but what we're saved for, and that is the everlasting enjoyment of God, the much-making of God when He comes again and Christ establishes His kingdom, a new heaven, new earth, perfect, perfect environment with glorified saints and angels to delight in God forever. And the Bible teaches that that is the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. And if you would take sides with God against yourself and against your sin, and you'd put your faith in Jesus, he promises that he'll save you and he'll have you forever. Won't you have him? Won't you turn to him? Won't you give your life to him? And you wanna know the weight of majesty? Meet God in Christ, and he'll have you forever, and you will be thrilled forever with the greatest of all delights, and that's God himself in the person of his Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing close to 12 weeks of studying the attributes of God, that we would know this God, that we would know him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this God who is a, a jealous and zealous God, we praise him for that. I remember many years ago, Oprah Winfrey said that when she learned that the God of the Bible was a jealous God, she wanted nothing more to do with him. And I don't know where she stands today in her beliefs, but she obviously totally misunderstood the jealousy of God. 
we praise him that he is a jealous and zealous God, that he would come after us in our rebellion. Let's praise him now in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these Sunday mornings that we can come and learn about your attributes and um, learn them rightly. God, we praise you that you are a jealous and a zealous God, that you are a patient God, that you would come after us in our rebellion. And so many of us think that we have fallen off the path at certain times and somehow wised up and came back, but it was you, oh God, in your faithfulness that chased after us. God, we praise you for that. Help us live zealously for you, to give our lives for the gospel and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.